most of us head up north to get away from it all, right? That's a place to vacation, a place to kick back and relax, to hang out with family and friend, to start a bonfire, maybe tell a few stories. But that's where we head when we want to get a break. But some people head up north for a different reason every summer in Michigan, and that's for a wedding. And since destination weddings have become a big thing, up north has become even more popular as far as weddings go. So if you're thinking about getting married or planning a wedding soon, and you're thinking about going up north, I have done your homework for you here this morning. And I just wanted to point out several places that you could actually check out for your destination wedding. Let's start with the obvious one, right? Uh, Mackinac Island. Is there a better place than Mackinac Island? But the Grand Hotel, Mackinac Island, a great place to have a wedding. Anybody here to get married there? That's disappointing, isn't it? All right. Well, that's a little too pretentious. You could try this on Mackinac Island. This is Stonecliff Inn. That looks pretty nice, doesn't it, on the uh, manor grounds there? I think if you go here, though, you have to have an outdoor wedding, which you might just want to check outside and think about that one, okay, before you uh, commit to that. That's also in Mackinac Island. Or if you're really more into, like, the religious church-type scene, you can do the Stone Church there on Mackinac Island, too. So those are some options. But maybe you don't want to do the whole Mackinac Island thing. Well, how about if you head on over to Charlevoix here? This is Castle Farms. And just so you know, Pastor Mark has actually officiated a wedding here at Castle Farms in Charlevoix. In fact, he's officiated weddings all over up north. So if you really want to do a destination wedding... Up north, Pastor Mark is the guy to talk to. This is a place in Gaylord. There's a lot of barns, it looks like, up north where you can do your wedding. And I just picked this one because look at all those lights. If you find the wedding to get a little bit boring, you could sit and count light bulbs, and that would keep you occupied for pretty much the whole ceremony. I think this is my favorite. I'm not exactly sure where this one is. It looks like some KOA campground, doesn't it? So you can get married to your campground. If you're really lucky, they might be doing like a Civil War reenactment that weekend. I'm not exactly sure what's going on there. But you can head up north for your wedding. Now, why are we talking about this on Father's Day, right? Well, there's two reasons. The first reason is this. Like every father's worst nightmare is his daughter's wedding. And I'm looking square in the headlights of that coming up here just in a little bit for myself. In fact, if you've ever watched that movie, Father of the Bride with Steve Martin, my kids love that. My family loves that. The last time I watched it with them, I still no more. I am never watching this movie again because it just rips me apart. You know, like, you know, this guy's daughter's getting married and heading off. And so that's where I am this Father's Day. As I'm standing looking at about to lose a daughter, I like the guy and everything's good, but I'm like, oh... The other reason we're talking about this on Father's Day is because we're actually talking about a wedding destination that Jesus went to up north in a place called Cana. And since we're doing this up north series, this was a great introduction, wasn't it? So let's go ahead and travel up north with Jesus to a wedding in a place called Cana. But before we go there, I want us to stop and pause and think about something for just a minute. Have you ever noticed this? And maybe I, maybe I a little bit more because I grew up in a, as a pastor's kid and, and was at church a lot. But weddings have a tendency to have a moment in them. And that moment is not really a good moment. It's just a moment where the unforeseen happens. 
you plan for weddings and you try to get every detail exactly right. And then on wedding day, during the wedding, something happens that you're not really expecting. For instance, I remember growing up when, when uh, Joel Aberger got married, his brother Tom was in the wedding ceremony. And back then the big thing was uh, the standing couples. And, you know, the couples would come down the aisle together. And so Tom, and I forget who the girl was, came down the aisle. And they actually were standing right at the very back in the center uh, of the platform there. And so the pastor and, and Tom's brother and, and wife-to-be were standing in front of the pastor. And you know what they always tell you? Don't lock your knees because you might pass out. Somebody forgot to tell Tom. And about halfway through the ceremony, Tom's standing there like this. And all of a sudden, it's just like, whoop. He went completely over sideways and just hit the floor, right in the middle of the whole thing. So everything stops. They have to go back and and revive Tom. Not what you were planning for in your ceremony. I remember the the service that my dad was doing, too, where the whole bridal party either had really, like, bad food at the, the rehearsal dinner the night before, or they all got the flu. I'm not exactly sure what was going on. But being on the stage was not the room that they wanted to be in at that time. And I remember that ceremony because my dad prayed like all the time. And he said, and let's pray. And we'd pray again. And every time we'd look up, another person of the wedding party had disappeared off the platform. And uh, so it was like the disappearing wedding uh, that was going on there. We talk about, you know, this in our re-engage thing, which will start back up in the fall. Shameless plug here. Hopefully you're ready for that. But uh we asked people, hey, tell us about your wedding. Did anything unusual happen at your wedding? One couple told us about the, the night before. He jumped into a pool, not realizing it was as shallow as it was, and he broke his toe. And uh, so he hobbled down the aisle on, on a broken toe and all through the honeymoon on a broken toe. Um, there was another couple that, uh, you remember the great power outage that we had? It's got to be back, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, when the whole Midwest went dark. That was their wedding weekend. And... Uh, and so they had to cancel the uh, reception, and instead they just had a big backyard barbecue. That sounds kind of fun, doesn't it? But uh, so there's always these moments. When my sister got married, she came down the aisle, and my dad was going to do the ceremony, but he really wanted to give away the bride. And so my brother was leading that part of the service. And so they come down the aisle, and there's Galen and my dad and, and John, the guy she's married. And my brother looks at them and says, And who gives this man... And then he realized that he'd said it wrong. So he said, and who gives this man to be married? And he's hoping nobody will catch it, except there's a guy in the audience named Ray who laughs at everything, and he heard it. And it's just like, ah! and the whole place just cracks up laughing as my brother gives the, 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 the groom away. There was my own personal wedding when I married my wife. You probably had that figured out, that part. But I'm standing up there, you know, as the nervous groom, and I'm really excited. And I look in the back door there, and she's coming down the aisle, and she looks absolutely fabulous. And and, and all the, pre, the you know the the music has changed, and it's shifted to the to the wedding march, and bum bum bum, and the whole sound system went berserk. So my wife walked down the aisle to so if you. Uh, yeah, it's very romantic, let me tell you. So electrifying, okay? So anyhow, things go wrong at weddings, but this one may take the cake.
Some of you may have remember remember that that happened back at, uh, a few years ago at Gun Lake over near Kalamazoo, and uh, it has special significance to me because I actually officiated a wedding the following weekend at that place of my niece, and everybody was like this: "Hey, Rick, aren't you so glad that that happened last weekend and not this weekend?" And he's like, "No," he said, "because I'm guessing they probably got like 50% off the wedding tab, right?" But we have these weddings, and we look forward to them, and then we have these moments. And the moments at that time is like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And later they actually become something fun that we can look back on and we can talk about. But in this wedding that Jesus goes to up north in Cana, there's this moment too. And this moment, like this moment, became viral. In fact, We're still talking about it 2,000 years ago. And so let's go ahead and turn to John chapter 2 in our Bibles, wherever you're using your your device there. John chapter 2. And let's look at this wedding that Jesus went to, and let's look at the moment that happened there. So John 2, verse number 1, on the third day a wedding took place in Cana up north in... Sorry, it doesn't say up north, does it? Um, I just added that in. It's in the Greek, okay? Jesus attended this uh, wedding up north at a place called Galilee. And we'll go back to the map that we looked at last week. Jesus was from Nazareth, which is this town right here. Last week we talked about um, the call of the first disciples along the shore, somewhere between Capernaum and Bethsaida here. Evidently Jesus goes back back home here. And then heads up to Cana. This is where this wedding takes place. And so this whole region right here is Galilee. But Jesus uh, goes to the wedding at Cana there. And it tells us also that Jesus' mother was there. And then verse number 2, Jesus' disciples had also been invited to this wedding. So he goes. And this is interesting too in the process of just going to this wedding. Jesus gives his stamp of approval to this whole biblical idea of marriage. And uh, so it's a great... Yes, you know, validation of it, uh, that marriage is a good thing. But he doesn't just go with his plus one. He actually goes with his plus four or his plus six. How many other disciples he has at this time now? Um, James and and John, we're not sure of, but we assume Philip, uh, Nathaniel, and uh, Andrew, and Simon are all at this wedding. And it's likely a large wedding. And then there's this moment. Here's the moment, verse number three. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. And the moment was this, the wine wine ran out. And that doesn't sound like that big a deal to us, but at a Jewish wedding, this was like the ultimate faux pas. Because a Jewish wedding, there'd be the wedding, and there'd be the processional through the streets, and there'd be a a, a lot of of, uh, hoopla and uproar, and they'd all come back to the house, and then they would throw the party. The the reception would be the uh, equivalent today. But it would last for a while. It would last from anywhere from two days to 14 days. And basically, as long as it lasted, was indicative of how much wealth your family had. So you always wanted your party to last for a while. And when the wine ran out, though, the party was over and everybody went home. So in this situation, evidently what happens is the wine runs out... The party's about to be over, and they're about to have a significant moment. And this is not a moment that they're going to laugh about later on. This is going to be a moment that later on they're going to look at and go, 
Oh, we really messed that up. Oh, that really went wrong. Oh, that really ruined the reception. And so Mary reaches out to Jesus, but it's kind of odd. Because what is she exactly expecting him to do? She just leans over and says, hey, they're out of wine. But she's not really asking him anything. She just tells him about the problem. But it's unlikely at this point that Mary's ever seen Jesus even do a miracle. Because there'd be no reason to, necessarily. And we're also told that Jesus did miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see the, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. And this follows probably within a week or so of that baptism. So there's not even been any opportunity. So, so Mary says, hey, Jesus... They run out of wine. What is it exactly that she's looking for? And then it gets even more unusual. The next verse, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. And in the English translation, that sounds very terse and very brusque. In the Greek, that would have been much more gentle. And so Jesus wasn't really rebuking her so much. as just as he was saying, hey, you know, you're telling me this, but... But this isn't my time to be doing something. And I, you know, I'm waiting on God to give me the go. And it doesn't really give us a lot of explanation for this story. It's kind of an odd thing there. And, and I don't know myself. I speculate. Um, was, was Mary sensing that things were about to change? The baptism of Jesus had just taken place a few days to a week ago. Or, or I guess it's a little bit before that, because then we had the temptation of Christ. And, and, and we see these different things. And Mary, maybe Mary is sensing that, that it's, you know, that, that the car is about to go over the top of the track, right? And that it's really finally time for Jesus to, to launch into this ministry. And think about that. Mary's been waiting a long time for that, hasn't she? I mean, she knew the story of the virgin birth, and she knew that she was a virgin. But she could never prove that to anybody. And if she told her story, everybody would still be looking at her 30 years later going, yeah, right, Mary. And so maybe she's just in that tension and, and, and hoping to get rid of that cloud of suspicion that she's lived under her whole life. I don't know. Maybe it was actually God the Father using Mary to nudge Jesus to say, yeah, go ahead, say something, because it's time. We don't know. And maybe it was fine that she said that, and maybe Jesus is actually a little bit reticent in, 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 in responding to her because he knows what happens next. From this point on, everything cuts loose. And he's on this trajectory, which is his ministry, and from now on the crowds are going to be following him, and he's going to be constantly harassed, and he's going to have to sneak away to find private times. And it's going to be crazy until it eventually takes him to a cross. And at this point forward, Jesus has to know what's going to happen next. But what, for whatever reason, Jesus seems to push back. But Mary keeps right on going. She says in the verse number five, there, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> and I don't think she had any idea what Jesus was going to do. She just says, do whatever he tells you. And so that whole exchange is odd. And then what happens next is even stranger, I think, because didn't it just sound like Jesus said, hey, it's not my time to do this? And then he turns around and he does this. We read about it in verse number 8. 
Nearby stood, stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, first of all, these were used to wash hands. When people go to eat, they stop by these water jars, dip their hands in them, they wash their hands, they go on and eat. And so it was actually a somewhat hygiene. It was also ceremonial to be getting rid of the, the uncleanness of life before we, we go partake of, of you know, the, um, the bread and, and whatever is being served us and fed to us. But these things were huge. 20 to 30 gallons? Like the garbage cans that you take out to the curb are like 30 gallons, right? And so if you can see 30 or, or six of these things lined up, and it actually tells us there that there was between, they held between 20 to 30 gallons. We're talking somewhere between 120 to 150 gallons of water there when those things were full. And Jesus says in verse number 7 to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them with water to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, the MC. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And there it is, the first miracle that Jesus performs. And his official ministry, in a sense, is underway now. Now the master of the ceremony, he didn't realize where to come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best till now. You brought out the fine, line, the fine wine at the last year. And so this whole story is odd. And even from the standpoint of this, Jesus now has launched his ministry. And yet most people don't even realize it happened. A few servants and Mary and some disciples who are watching this whole thing. The bride and the groom, they have no clue what's happening. The host that's uh, serving as MC, he doesn't know what's going on there. The people attending this wedding, they have no idea what's going on, what just happened, that they are actually in the middle of a miracle. It just goes right on by them. And so the story is pretty unusual. And you look at this and go, wow, what is this all about? I'm not sure I even get the point of this. And then we get to the next verse. And John rescues us, and he gives us some information that helps us make sense of this whole story. And he says in verse number 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first, that's important, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so there's four things here that John says happen in this story. The first one is this, it's the launch of Jesus' ministry. It gets underway, and we've talked about that. And so this was the starting point. And so this miracle, this turning water to wine, was a key place because you could at least say this is when the starting line was. But go on beyond that to the end of the verse there. It says his disciples believed in him, or his disciples believed more in him. They hadn't been following him for a long time, and so they're kind of in this observer mold, mode here. And Jesus goes to the wedding, and he does this miracle, and they're like, whoa, what just happened here? Hey, hey Peter, did you see what I saw? Is, is that really the case there? And so it was something that Jesus used to draw those followers in to say, hey, you know what? 
you can follow me, because when you follow me, some incredible things are going to happen here. Because I'm not just who I seem to be. I'm not just a mere man. I'm not just some radical rabbi here. I am actually God. And that's the third thing in that verse mentions that he revealed God's glory. And he told the disciples and for the people who were in the know at that time an awful lot about who he was, but who God was as well. And he made a statement about the kind of God that they were going to be following in the person of Jesus. And in the process of this, he also gave further validation or verification of who he was. If you think about this, John, while baptizing, said, Behold the, the, the Lamb of God who takes the sin away the sin of the world. In other words, John had said, Hey, this is the Messiah. And then uh, at the baptism, the Holy Spirit descends, and the voice from heaven says, What? This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And so God the Father gives verification that, that the Messiah has come. And then Jesus, and we talked about this the first week in our Up North series, Jesus goes up to Galilee, it fulfills what the prophet Isaiah had said about the Messiah. And so we've seen these series of events, and now we have one more to add to it to say, yes, this is the Messiah, and that's what this miracle does for us. But the real key is in that phrase, what Jesus did here in Canaan Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And he provided a sign. Now, when we go somewhere, we usually go to see the place and not the sign. Although for some strange reason, like when we go to the Grand Canyon and we take our picture for Facebook, we take a picture of us standing by the Grand Canyon side. I don't get it. Why don't you just go stand by the Grand Canyon? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? But we like to do that sometimes. But generally speaking, if you're going to drive out there to the Grand Canyon or you're going to go up to wherever it is, you're not going to stop when you get to the sign. You're going to keep going. Because the sign points to the attraction. And what John says here is this miracle was the first of Jesus' signs. He's making a statement. He's saying, don't get hung up on the miracle. That's not the big deal of the story. And I look at that story and I'm like, well, obviously the miracle is the big deal, right? Had anybody before ever turned water to wine? No. And John says... You need to look past the miracle and you need to look to the truth that it teaches. And seven times through the book of John, and and this is actually picked up on in your growth guide this week, if you follow around with the growth guide that we give you, seven times John records miracles of Jesus, but he refers to them as signs to say, don't just look at the miracle, look at what the miracle is trying to teach. And so the question comes to us this morning, What is the truth that John is trying to show? And what was the truth that Jesus was portraying in the course of this miracle? And it's simply this. It's what Jesus does when you run out of wine. Or you could just make that a blank and fill in whatever needs to go in that blank. The truth of this miracle is what Jesus can do when you run out of whatever. When you run out of peace. 
what Jesus can do. Or maybe when you run out of joy, maybe that's where you are, a place in your life where you're just like, you know what? I'm just going through the motions because I'm so discouraged and I'm so defeated and I'm so frustrated. And so I just, I don't have any more joy. It's just gone. Or, or maybe you've run out of hope this morning. There's something that you've been praying about. Maybe it's something that you've been working towards and something that you've been hoping for and it's just not happening and you're just like, I just need to stop hoping for that because it's not happening. And rather than disappoint myself, I'm just going to step away from that and we run out of hope. Maybe you've run out of love this morning. Maybe you're in a relationship where you got up this morning, you rolled over and you looked and said, you know what? I just feel nothing. I'm numb. I'm empty. I'm out of love. Maybe you've run out of forgiveness. Some relationship where just over and over again, you're wronged or you're hurt or you're insulted or you're wounded and you're like, you know what? I can't keep forgiving. I'm, I'm out. I don't have any more. Maybe you've run out of passion and you just do the same thing every day because that's what you know you got to do, but you're not really excited about it. Maybe you just you know, show up to church every week because that's just the habit, but you've run out of passion. What is it in your life? What is it in your story that you've run out of? Because this miracle wasn't really about wine. And it wasn't just for the moment and it really wasn't about the miracle. It was the truth that Jesus says, when you run out, I run in. And whatever it is that you've run out of in your life, and it can run the gamut, it can be a wide spectrum of things. This morning, Jesus is saying, let me run in. And if you're out of wine, well, I can provide more wine. And if you're out of hope, I can give you more hope. And if you're out of joy, I can give you more joy. Because I'm the source. Here's the deal. We are going to run out because we're finite creatures. We don't have unlimited resources. You only go so far and then you need to go get some sleep, right? You can only go so far and you need to get some food. And there's a lot of different ways in life we can only get so far and then we run out. And the only place we're going to find replenishment is through Jesus. We run out for different reasons. We run out because of our finiteness. We run out sometimes because we're foolish. And in this story... Somewhere, somebody had made a mistake. They had done the math wrong, or they invited too many people, or they had just gotten too big of cups to pass out the wine. I don't know what the deal was, but they ran out of wine because of their own foolishness. And I love that, because sometimes I mess up, and I'm like, well, Jesus would never help me because I messed up. And he's like, yeah, I do. That's the kind of God that I am. And sometimes we just run out because the demands of the situation. Sometimes life is hard, isn't it? It just beats us down, and it asks a lot from us. And we're like, I got nothing. And that's when Jesus steps in. So when we run out, Jesus runs in. And let's just tease that out a little bit as we finish up here this morning. What that looks like. First of all, Jesus cares about you because he cares about people. In this story, he evidently cared about a bride and groom enough that he wasn't going to embarrass them. He cared about the guests enough that he was going to keep the party going. He cared about his disciples enough that he said, I'm going to grab this opportunity and show you who I really am. And he cares about you and me because he says to John, hey, make sure this gets recorded in your gospel. And whatever it is that you've run out of this morning, 
Jesus is tuned into that because He cares about people. And He cares about you. And He can give you whatever you need when you run out. So I don't know what it is that you're missing this morning. And I don't know where it is where you're at the bottom of the barrel, where the wineskins are dry, but Jesus can meet this need. And in this story, we see three aspects of Jesus' giving that I think are fascinating. First of all, He gives out of His goodness. And we sang about the goodness of God. That's a great song, wasn't it? Jesus gives because He's good. And He's compelled to give because He's good. There's no balance of good and bad in Jesus like we sometimes see in ourselves. There's just good, and it's an expressive good on top of that. When Jesus went through the, the world doing good, it was because that's who He was. It wasn't like He was like, oh, I should do good today. It was just that as He went through the day, He exuded goodness. Oh, you need healed, I'll heal you. Oh, you need fed, I'll, I'll feed you. Oh, you need wine, I'll give you wine. Jesus' goodness is what He gives from, and it's always expressive. He gives from His generosity too. If you filled up six garbage cans with wine today, you'd be looking at roughly 500 bottles of wine. That's a pretty big gift to the wedding party there. And, and to, for the reception. But Jesus gives generously and He gives graciously. I mentioned this before. They didn't deserve this. They messed it up. And there's so many times in our lives where we say, well, Jesus would never do anything good for me because I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. I've messed this up. But that's not what this teaches. This teaches that He's good and He's generous and He is gracious. He blesses us anyhow. Now, you may have a part to play in this story. What did Jesus say to them? Hey, fill the water jars. He didn't put the water in the water jars. He could have. But he had them put the water in the water jars. And if you look at all the times as, as Jesus goes through the Gospels there and goes through Galilee, where he did a miracle, but where there was a human element attached to that. Even like, okay, I'm going to feed the 5,000, but you find me the boy's lunch. Or I'm going to heal your sight, but I'm just going to put mud in your eyes. You go wash here. Or I'm going to heal your leprosy. You go show yourself to the priest. Or I'm going to, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but you roll the stone away. And so many times when Jesus says, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to give you a task to do. Remember what Mary said? Do whatever he tells you to do. I don't know where it is that you've run out, but what is the to do that you can grab a hold of and make it yours? Fill the water drawers. Take the wine to the master of ceremonies. Do what he tells you to do. And then remember this. Your crisis is Jesus' opportunity. Most of us don't enjoy crises. We don't look for them. We don't hope that the, you know, the, 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 the impossible situation comes to us. And yet that's where Jesus shows the brightest. Oh, you're out of wine? Oh, I can do something with that. Oh, you're out of joy? Oh, I can do something with that. Oh, you're out of hope? I can do something with that. Oh, you're out of peace? I can do something with that. And our crisis provides the opportunity for Jesus to step in and fill our water jars. And that's a good reminder to us, isn't it? That Jesus can do the unexpected. Do you think anybody in this story had any clue what was going to happen? Do you think when Mary leaned over and said to Jesus, Hey, you're out of water? 
excuse me, out there on a wine? Did she have any idea that Jesus would provide so much? That he would step in in that way? And I just say that to you this morning because if you're sitting there and you say, you know what, I've run out. And whatever it is that you can fill in that blank there, I've run out of, well, Jesus can do the unexpected. Remember, it's not about the miracle. It's about the sign. And what the sign really points to is this, that Jesus is all about transformation. He turns water to wine. He turns impossible situations to things that actually happen. He turns hopelessness to hope. He turns restlessness to peace. He turns sorrow to joy. He is about transformation in our stories. And so as we travel with Jesus up north in Galilee and we go to a wedding today, there was a moment. And there was a moment that we continue to talk about today. As you come in, as I come in this morning, maybe we are experiencing our moment. We've run out. The wine's gone. But there's hope. Because the winemaker is present.